This is The State We're In Podcast from WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today's show is called Do the Right Thing. Uh, are you Sergio Haro? Yes, I'm Sergio Haro. You don't know what's going on with you. I'm going to kill you, motherfucker. Something like that. This is a phone call my guest Sergio Haro received a few years ago while investigating the death of his friend, a reporter who was looking into crimes perpetrated by a Mexican drug cartel. Here's a more formal introduction. My name is Sergio Haro, Sergio Haro in Espanol. I'm from Mexicali, Mexico. It's in the state of Baja California, who is in the border with California. I'm a journalist uh, since uh, about 28 years, and I'm a reporter and photographer. Sergio Haro reports and takes photographs for the muckraking Mexican weekly Zeta, an independent and highly respected weekly located in Tijuana, Mexico, right on the border with San Diego, California. For the last three decades, Sergio and his colleagues at Zeta have uncompromisingly reported everything going on in the Baja California border region. Things like immigration, political corruption, and, of course, the unprecedented level of drug violence. This has made Sergio and everyone at Zeta very unpopular with a lot of very powerful people. This is why their paper is printed in San Diego and brought over the border every week. This way, the Mexican government can't make the printer have sudden paper supply problems. As a union controlled by the PRI, controlled by the government. The PRI was the controlling government party at the time. Yeah. Exactly, and the union's workers was from the PRI, and were working in this place, so they invented some kind of a strike. Well, it's only one of the uh, examples. The truth is, paper supplies are the very least of their problems. The previous Mexican president declared open war on the drug cartels in 2006 and deployed more than 50,000 troops throughout the country. Since then, at least 60,000 people have been killed, probably more, most of them civilians. And more than 80 reporters have been murdered or gone missing in the last decade, making Mexico one of the deadliest places in the world to be a journalist. As Sergio knows all too well. <laughs> I think it's too dangerous, but I don't think I can quit. Our job is to show what's happening. There's a risk, but the other is do nothing. The staggering death toll has put the spotlight on Mexico right now, in the 21st century. But Zeta's crusade to shed light on abuses of power in Baja, California, started way back in the 80s. And this means that Zeta's tragedy started way back in the 80s. Take the fate of one of the weekly's founders, Hector Gato Feliz Miranda. This is an interview with Gato from 1988. Here he says that his biting critical editorials are proof that freedom of expression exists in Mexico. Gato mercilessly mocked and satirized corrupt and powerful people, especially officials from the long-ruling Revolutionary Institutional Party, or the PRI. He made enemies, the most powerful of which was Jorge Henk, the son of the PRI mayor of Mexico City. Here's a clip of Jorge Henk talking about the animals in his private menagerie. Thing is, I'm pretty much worried about the animals much more than the humans, so they take care of the animals. They can take care of themselves, so... <laughs> Jorge Henk had become a dandy and a power broker in Tijuana with connections to the PRI. He was also owner of the Agua Caliente racetrack. 
Gatto wrote about Jorge Hank a lot, and so, in 1988, Gatto was gunned down. El periodismo en Baja California está de luto luego de que esta mañana fue cobardemente asesinado el señor Héctor Félix Miranda. This TV news report is about Hector Gato Feliz Miranda's murder. The assassins all worked at Agua Caliente for Jorge Henk. People from the Hipódromo Agua Caliente, the cars from the Hipódromo Agua Caliente, the chief of security of the Hipódromo Agua Caliente were involved in the assassination. At least three of them were in jail. Two of them are still in jail. The other, I suppose, died. But the people considering Jorge Han was involved as a chief of all of this group, and Jorge Han was the focus of main of the ironics commentaries in the column, but he never goes to the judicial process. They got the little guys, but they didn't get the big guy. Exactly, exactly. The situation in, in the 2004, Jorge Han ran for the a city mayor. He, he won. In, in 2004, Jorge ran to be mayor of which town? In Tijuana. Jorge Henk won the election and became mayor of Tijuana in 2004. In 2007, he even tried to run for governor of Baja California, but lost that time. This is an interview with Zeta's other founder and editor, Jesus Blancornelas, talking about what happens when you write about something dangerous. He says... When you're holding on to a delicate story, you are afraid. But you lose that fear once the story is published. Before it's published, I'm the only one who knows about it. And someone who's compromised by my story might try to do something to me. But once the story is out, everyone knows and I'm not scared anymore. Blanco Nelas may not have been afraid, but he still needed bodyguards and state protection. But even that wasn't enough when he published a picture of Ramon Arellano Feliz, the leader of the Tijuana cartel, right on Zeta's cover. When Feliz's mother sent him a letter chiding Blanco Cornelas for the picture, he published her letter too. And the next week, the state bodyguards went out. Why, why did the bodyguards go? Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, he published that letter. There was more threat against him than ever. <laughs> exactly. They just left. Uh-huh. They just left. The next week, Blancornelas, uh, in the morning, was going to the office of the weekly. He was in his car, right? Suddenly, a group of 12 killers ambushed, ambushed? They ambushed him. Ambushed him, uh-huh. Blancornelas was uh, herido. Shot. Was shot, a lot of shots in the body. He was riddled, riddled with bullets. But uh, something happens, the killer who was finished the, the job, he was like the leader of the group, right? Yeah. Exactly. Was a well-known killer in this area. He was shooting at the was a crossfire, and the one of the bullets got to the metallic part of the fence and got through one of these eyes, and so he was killed by his own partners. The seven liters of blood. Seven liters of the, blood. Of the blood go go out through the eye, and this was slowly going down. With a lot of blood by the day. There are pictures from the shooting. The car has been Swiss cheesed with bullet holes, and off to the side is the lead hitman, his rifle still in his hand, slumped up against a wall, a stream of dried black blood running down to the pavement. The rest of the people who tried to kill him ran off, 
Bueno, Cornelius uh, was translated to the hospital and was staying in the hospital about two months. And after that, he went back to the journalist, but with at least 20 guards, army people, well-trained. And so he spent the last eight years of his life in the circle of security. He cannot live from the country. He cannot go to the restaurants. He can go a normal life. He only went from his house with a lot of bodyguards to the newspaper offices with a lot of bodyguards. It's a real dramatic, a terrible situation. Now, when you heard that Blanco Ornelas was shot, what went through your head? It's like a golpe en la cabeza, we say in Spanish. You got punched in the head? Yeah, that's a, a punch in the, in the head. It's a miracle who could survive this attack. But uh, no, he survived about eight, nine years after that. And when he did die, he died of natural causes. After yeah. eight years, but these eight years, he was uh, uh, surrounded by a lot of bodyguards. He lived like a prisoner. Exactly, prisoner in his own places, in his own facilities, like the office and the car, and that's it. The investigation fingered two well-known brothers for the attempt on Blanc Cornelius's life, but no one has gone to jail. And then came the blow that struck Sergio Aro most deeply, Benjamin Flores. Benjamin Flores was a, was a young journalist, friend of mine. I think it's one of the closest, the more close situation because Benjamin was my friend. Sometimes we drink a beer, go to take coffee. He comes to Mexicali, went to San Luis, and suddenly we heard that he was killed. It was a very, very bad situation. We followed the investigation, but the next three weeks, four weeks, I went to Hermosillo, I interviewed the procurador, I interviewed the government, I interviewed uh, some people linked with the people who was involved in the homicide. We followed the investigation for a two, or three, four weeks, one month, two months, but nothing happens. Nothing happens. The, some people was in jail, but we supposed they were not the... Principals. Not the principals, but one guy was arrested. He was subsequently let go, rearrested on a drugs charge, and let go again. Sergio's paper put his photo on their cover, and then, a few days later, Sergio's phone rang. He picked it up, and a voice said, Me dijo, busco a Sergio Aro. I, I received the, the call. I'm Sergio Aro. Tú eres Sergio Aro, sí. ¿Sabes qué, hijo de tu pinche madre? Ni sabes en la que, meti en la que te metiste, me dice. Te voy a matar, cabrón. I remember exactly the words. What exactly does that mean? Uh, are you Sergio Haro? Yes, I'm Sergio Haro. You don't know what's going on with you. I'm going to kill you, man. Or something like that. I didn't know what to do, what to say in this moment. I only hear when they click. They put the phone down. He just gestured putting the phone uh -huh, down. Uh -huh, and, so what would you do then? I remember I called with all my team. So we decided to, to do some things, like go to the state attorney to put the bodyguards. I never feel safety with the bodyguards, but if my family, my wife, my son was uh, about eight years old, they feel safety. So why exactly, and I don't want to sound flip about this, but why are you and I having this conversation? In other words, how is it that you're still alive? The amount of money that the narco-traffickers are throwing around in Mexico, they own anybody they want to own. Can you ever really be safe? No, no, no. 
I can I, I don't like to be a paranoic. How can I say going in my oh, looking over your shoulder, which is what you're literally doing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I think it's not, it's not like a a life if you're living like that. Okay, but you know you're not alone. You you have a wife, you have a child. You have a very patient wife. I mean, if I imagine myself in your position having that conversation with my wife, I can't imagine her not coming to me at some point and saying, and now it's enough. You're going to get him killed, meaning our child, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a hard, hard situation. After the treats, uh, my wife and my boy went to another city by two or three weeks. I was in vacation in the school. I was alone in my house with bodyguard outside. A friend of mine lent me a, a little gun. But it's all so crazy because I, I don't know how to shoot. I don't know how to use it. I have it in my in my photo equipment box with a, a pistol. And my wife, I think, is a very brave woman. Brave woman. Yeah. Do you sleep at night? Sure. <laughs> I try to live a life as normal as possible. So let me ask you, has any story you've ever written really changed something or someone? I'm going to change the question. What happens if Zeta doesn't exist? What will happen in Baja California, in the region, without no critics, without no journalists uh, printing what's happening? Look, I hate to challenge you on this, but I feel like I have to ask you. The drug cartels, they have all the resources that count. They have the money, they have the power, they have the connections, they have the guns. Isn't it fair to say at this point that they won? In Mexico, I suppose, yes. If, if the president, the last president said that there is a war against the cartels, if this is a war, the government has been losing this war. Sergio says things have gotten better in Baja, California over the last few years. There's less violence, fewer people are dying, the military has even backed off. But journalists are still dying, and their killers are still getting away with it. Most of the killers are not in jail, and I think it's the main situation we must push to the government to make the part of the job that they are correspond. Oh, come on. Is that really going to happen? Is that really going to happen? Is the government really going to put him in jail? Because the other parties do nothing. I think we must push. Well, I know you're going to push, but is it <laughs> going to happen? Do you really believe that's going to happen? Because I think we must be uh, optimists. We must be, how can I say, faith in the, in the, in the, in the future, uh, pushing to the future. If Sergio, don't, they, don't, they, they killed nothing. your friends. Yeah, I know that. They, they, they have it's, taken over the government. I, I, There's huge amounts of people dying everywhere in the country. I, they own everything. Even you yourself said that they won. Yeah. How can you be optimistic? I think I, for me, Will, will be worse if I can do nothing, if I do nothing. I know it's, it's a hard way, it's a lot of risk, but I think it's uh, the things that we must do. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are you a soldier? Nope, I'm not a soldier, I'm not a hero, I'm not an apostle. I'm just a journalist. I'm trying to do my work. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and that's it. Sergio Otto is a... An honor to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you, too. You're a braver man than I. <laughs> Much braver. Verdes tras verdes los cuentas Con máquina o con la mano Antes no tenía ni un peso Pero las cosas cambiaron 
I spoke with Sergio Otto at the Movies That Matter Festival in The Hague. Some of the audio in today's show is from the documentary Rapportero. If you live in the United States, you can actually see the full film on the PBS Point of View website until the end of the month. The music you've listened to in today's show is mostly from the Mexican musician Larry Hernandez's album 16 Narco Corridos. Yes, there is an entire genre of Mexican music dedicated to the exploits of drug traffickers and other kinds of Mexican organized crime. La gente ocupa más This is the State We're In podcast from WBEZ. Today's podcast actually has a title. It's Do the Right Thing. Master storyteller Sahen Saheb Divani knows hundreds of parables from ancient Persia, from a time when rulers were plagued by bad dreams and serpents spoke. This story is called The Boy, the King, and the Snake. Once upon a time, there was a king, and he was plagued by these horrible nightmares. Every night, he used to dream of a fox's tail hanging above his bed, hissing, moving, and he didn't know what this dream was. So he kept uh, calling his advisors. They brought in doctors. They brought astrologists, wise men, philosophers, and no one could explain this dream. So the king spread the news that whomever can explain this dream to me will get a bag of gold. And of course, this news reaches far and wide into the corners of the kingdom. Now, in a small mountain village, there's a young boy who dreams of doing great things. And he's traveling to the capital. And as he's traveling, he passes a little hole of a snake. And the snake comes out and he asks the boy, hey, boy, where are you going? And the boy explains that he's going to the capital and that everyone in the capital is talking about the king and his dreams. And whomever can solve the riddle of the dream is rewarded with a big bag of gold. So the snake listens to the story and he says, what? A tail of a fox hissing? Well, that's easy. In the kingdom, there's a lot of double-crossers and backstabbers. There's a lot of people who are taking money that's not theirs. People are stealing from each other. Tell the king to fire all his corrupt officials and everything will be well in the land. The boy is so happy. He says, well, if the king rewards me for this information, I will, I will share my gold with you, snake. And the snake says, sure goes into his hole, the boy goes to the capital, directly goes to the castle of the king, gives the explanation to the king, and the king is overjoyed. This is exactly what he needed to hear. And he gives the boy a big bag of gold. Now, the boy sees more money than he's seen ever in his life. And as he's going back to the village of his parents, he thinks with himself, what would a snake need gold for? So instead of passing the hole of the snake, he takes the long route, goes home, and with that money builds himself a grand house. Now a year later, the king has other nightmares. Now he's dreaming of a big sword that's hanging above his head. Every night he wakes up drenching in sweat. What does this dream mean? No one can explain it. Doctors, philosophers, his wise men, everyone who who tries to explain it just messes up. No one comes with a proper explanation. And the king then remembers there is this boy. We should ask him. And they send the messenger and the boy is summoned again. Now the boy has a problem because the boy doesn't have the answer. The only one who could help him out 
is the snake. But last time he double-crossed the snake. But now is the time for him to go and beg and plead with the snake. And that's what he does. He says, snake, please explain to me. What does this dream mean? And the snake says, well, last time you never shared your loot with me. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I, it was a horrible mistake. This time the king will give double the amount of money and I'll share it. Fair and square. It'll be a whole bag of gold for you. So the snake says, well, okay. It's actually not so complicated. The sword, it means there's a lot of violence in the kingdom. There's a lot of police who beat up innocent people. Just tell the king to set that right, to fire all the corrupt police officers, the ones who beat up innocent people, and the people will be happy again, and there will be peace and tranquility in the kingdom. And the boy thanks the snake from the bottom of his heart, goes to the capital, goes directly to the castle, tells the king what he needs to do, and the king... Here's the wisdom and the words of the boy. Sends him back with two bags of gold. And now the boy thinks with himself, I got all this gold. And what does a snake need with this gold? So he gets himself a sword. And as he passes the hole of the snake, the snake comes out. He says, um, I see you, you, you've you decided to come. And you have the gold. That's very good. But instead of giving him the gold, he draws his sword. And the snake he flees for his life back into the hole, but the boy manages to hack off just the end bit of the tail of the snake and goes to his home, and his big house turns into a small castle. A year passes, and then suddenly the king is beset with bad dreams again. He dreams this time of a sheep hanging from one of his legs from the ceiling above his head, and every night again the same dream... The sound of this sheep bleating in his ear. He wakes up every night drenched in sweat. He asks all his advisors, realizes, why should I bother with them? There is only one person who can explain this dream. Bring me the boy who has all the answers. And a messenger is sent to the boy, and the boy now realizes that the snake that he's double-crossed, the snake whose tail he's cut off, is now the only person who can save him. Because if you don't answer a king, you're in big trouble. So again, he goes to the hole of the snake. He falls down to his knees. He's crying big crocodile tears. And he says to the snake, please, snake, I know I treated you horribly, but please give me the answer one more time. This time, I'm sure of it. The king will give me four bags of gold and I will give it all to you. And the snake says, fine, one last time I'll help you. The sheep is actually a sign of prosperity. It might scare the king, but if he leads his people like a shepherd leads the sheep, they will grow fat and all will be well. The people will be content. Tell him not to worry and the dreams will disappear. So the boy goes directly to the king, tells him what he needs to know. The king is happy to hear it, rewards the boy with four bags of gold. And now the boy finds himself on the way back home with all this gold. Passes the hole of the snake. And as the snake comes out, he says, See, I brought you the gold. It's all yours. And the snake looks at him and says, Me, a snake, what do I need gold for? And the snake says, Well, the dreams, you foolish boy, they were all about you. When you told me about the dream of the fox's tail, it was about your treachery. When you told me about the dream of the sword suspended, that was about your violence. And now, in the time of plenty and prosperity, you gave me the dream of the sheep. And in this time, you decide to help me out. Well, you did. But don't forget, it's kindness in times of danger and treachery. That's what really counts. 
And with this, the snake goes back into the hole and leaves the boy with his gold and his newfound knowledge. That story was from Sahen Saheb Divani. Sahen was recently picked as Dutch Storyteller of the Year. You can find out more about him at mezrab.nl. I'll also link to it on our website, tswy.biz. And the music on the classical Persian tar was by Payam Jahanmani. This edition of The State We're In was produced by me, Jonathan Gruber. Special thanks to Alison Shali and Joe El Perro de So at WBEC Chicago. Tell us what you think of our show at our website, tswy.biz. Or friend us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash T-S-W-I dot O-R-G. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and I'll see you in two weeks for the next edition of the State We're In podcast from Chicago Public Media. <laughs>